this morning's scripture readings are from assorted proverbs about wealth, and they will be displayed on the screen behind me. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be bursting with wine. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and the one who waters will himself be watered. Whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed, for he shares his bread with the poor. This is God's word. Amen. So in the summer of the year of our Lord, 2001, uh, I was married to a giver. Going forward, any kind of person in need, uh, Katie would seek to meet that need and follow it up with concern and anxiety, thinking about it constantly. But when you marry a giver, you join together living spaces, a schedule, and a bank account that doesn't feel quite as private and as well-kept as it used to be. When we lived in the Cayman Islands for almost a decade, there was a bus system. There was also Katie's blue minivan. And I mentioned those together because that minivan, which underpaid uh, nannies, helpers, and cleaners, knew that they could hail it whenever they saw it coming down the street. And so I'll just hail that thing. Why, why, why pay money for a bus when we have the Honda Odyssey coming our way and Miss Katie? My mechanic, in fact, used to laugh whenever I would bring in the vehicle. It was a running joke in his shop as they began to think about and imagine all the ways that this car could be used to log that many miles on an island, on a small island. Where does this car go? Why is it going the length of a transcontinental venture? Uh, who knows? When you marry a giver, the impact spills over into your life. So years ago, um, Katie's sister, one of her sisters, needed uh, some luggage for an international trip she was about to embark on on the next day. And there sat our nicest piece of luggage. Ourselves, by the way, international travelers, visiting family here back in the States. So what did Katie do without batting an eye? Of course, she exchanged the suitcases. We'll just take yours, and you can take ours. So I got to take home a suitcase with three working wheels. Uh, <clears throat> a partially torn, sort of semi-working zipper that you could actually use if you, you, you threaded chicken wire through the needle, right? Needle it right through that eye, and that's how you pulled it. It would work. It was made, by the way, by Jeep. Yes, a car manufacturer, <laughs> apparently making luggage. I didn't know they produced suitcases, obviously with the, the upholstery, leftover upholstery from a Wrangler uh, right here. <laughs> And this thing I was lugging along. Now listen, I'm quite familiar with Jesus' statement about this. Whatever you do to the least of these, you do to me. And I, of course, have living proof sleeping next to me every night of this principle. So I'm thankful that the Bible wisely, wisely addresses people like me also who might not be quite as quick to give as others. Perhaps the, the wisest collection of practical advice for living comes in this ancient book of, of Hebrew sort of poetry called Proverbs. And Proverbs practically reasons with many of us who might not just automatically give anytime we see someone in need. And it does so 
by saying a few things. Give for yourself, give to honor God, and give so that you might be transformed. So some surprising pieces of advice. Give for yourself, give to honor God, and give so that you might be transformed. And these are the subjects of our three sets of Proverbs this morning. So let's explore them together. First of all, give for yourself. Proverbs 11, verse 24 makes a wise observation. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. These two portraits describe exactly what sociologist Christian Smith writes about in uh, his book, The Paradox of Generosity. Giving we receive, grasping we lose. And namely, that there are two types of mindset when it comes to to resources like our time, our treasure, our talents. That is an abundance mindset on the one hand and a scarcity mindset on the other. You may have heard of this before. An abundance mindset, a scarcity mindset, a scarcity mindset begins with the belief that there's there's only one pie and you got to get a piece of that pie before someone else gets it ahead of you. Whereas an abundance mindset is that God can make as many pies as he pleases. So it's okay to give away your your time and your talents and your treasure because you end up getting back more. Your time isn't so much lost but focused, and your talents are enhanced through the giving. A close encounter of this for me was the father of a student I mentored years ago. He owned a construction firm, did all this work, over the entire state of Florida. And early on in his business, uh, he and his wife took a risk to give away most of their disposable income to help out uh, two two struggling single moms. They bought a townhome for them. And he kept on doing stuff like this whenever he had opportunity, and his business continued to grow, and he continued to have plenty, certainly more than enough to live on. And people would ask him, how is it even possible that you give away so much? And yet still... You have all this wealth. And I heard him reply, look, as I shovel it out, he shovels more back in. And the Lord has a bigger shovel. You know what say? The Lord has a, and I love that phrase, the Lord has a bigger shovel. I shovel it out, he shovels more back in. The Lord has a bigger shovel. And yet, yet he was also quick to add, doesn't mean he has to use it. Doesn't mean he has to use it. He's not obligated to use it. And that's an important word of caution we began this book of uh, the series in Proverbs saying this about Proverbs, that Proverbs are probabilities, not promises. Let me say that again. Proverbs are probabilities about life, not promises. This is where the word of faith and the prosperity gospel movement twist God's words. They point to verses like the ones we're reading this morning and say, hey, look, see, God promises if you give today, you're going to get back more tomorrow. That's how televangelists were able to build their own theme park out of things like that. A sad but humorous reminder of an incident in the 1980s. But it also is a subtle trap for for us normies to fall into, that we're, we're, we're prone to throw up a kind of karmic Hail Mary and say, hey, maybe if I just give, everything in my life will finally turn around for me. Generally speaking, The person who does give freely is given back more. It's sound wisdom, but it is not a guarantee. Make sense? Let's move on to verse 25. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched. The one who waters will himself be watered. 
And science actually backs up this principle here. Did you know that intentional, regular rhythms of generosity are, are linked to the release of, of helpful physiological chemicals such as oxytocin, uh, dopamine, various strains of endorphins, all of which contribute to our mental happiness. The same part of our brains that light up where we to, to win the lottery or receive a raise light up when we give. Now, a raise you can't control, but giving, giving can always provide an immediate brain boost to us. We are well watered when we water, typically. Uh, my favorite illustration, favorite picture of this proverb that helps me is the, is the companion who rubs another's legs to keep them alive in the face of freezing temperatures, right? And, and they are saved by way of their own increased circulation, right? As they use their, their arms and their muscles and their, their hands to rub someone else's legs to keep them alive in the face of freezing temperature, it, it, it increases the circulation in their body and, and they are saved by their own exertion. Does that make sense? It's a beautiful picture. And all of this is surprising wisdom originally pointed out in the Bible here that to give for your own good. A second surprise here is to give to honor God. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. A surprising biblical principle is work to give primarily as an act of worship, not an, as an act of compassion. Let me say that again. We're, we're, we're called to primarily give as an act of worship, not as an act of compassion. Now, you see this elsewhere in places like Psalm 51. David, King David, Man after God's own heart, he puts an innocent man at the front line of a war, of a battle. He does this that this man might quickly be killed so that David can have his wife, all right, and not feel guilty about having her. Yikes, right? I mean, we think of this as a great man. Will we even let this man into our church knowing about him? I mean, that's, that's another sermon, though. Yet when David wakes up to the reality of what he's done, when he wakes up to this, this incredible, you know, this, this rebellion and sin, and the first thing he says, what he confesses in this, this prayer he writes is he says, against you, Lord, and you only have I sinned. And we might hear that and say, well, actually, David, you sinned against a lot of people, <laughs> not just against the Lord. There are a lot of people you probably need to go to and say, look, would you please forgive me? But to David, every good and perfect thing ultimately comes from God, including this man who has killed his wife, David's own life. Every good, everything comes from God. So to abuse what's been given by God is to abuse God himself, as it were. It's to violate his order, his commandment, his way of doing things. And so it's a sin against God. Well, when you give to the church, or you give to people in need, you have no guarantee that what you give, you hope it will be, but there's no guarantee it will be used well. What you can guarantee is that God will receive your gift, right? He's going to see your heart and he's going to turn it into some good by giving it. God, as our main recipient, decreases what I like to call the bitterness potential towards poor stewardship of your gift, right? So sometimes we see, we give to someone, they turn around, they go use it on booze or on drugs, right? 
you, you give to an organization and they make a decision that you don't like, right? And what does it do sometimes? It makes us not want to give again. But if in our heart, we're giving primarily to the Lord because he's been generous to us, it decreases our bitterness potential because we know that gift has been received by God. He sees our hearts. This proverb also addresses some of the mechanics of giving to God. It talks about the first fruits, right? You see that up on the screen? We read that? The first fruits in the Old Testament means giving the first and usually best of a person's crop, their wealth. They would start with 10% of their produce, and they would give it to those responsible for leading them into and teaching them about worshiping God. Those people in the Old Testament were called the Levites. They actually they didn't get any land. They had got people's tithe. And next, what's interesting is both of these principles are reflected, the first fruits and the Levites, in the New Testament. Galatians 6, verse 6, Paul says, One who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. All right? 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2, on the first day of the week, think first fruits there, on the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside, store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. In other words, Paul's saying, so I don't have to put the full court press on you when I come to give, that you're going to just lay it up ahead of time and store it ahead of time, the first of what you make. Under the new covenant with Jesus, God isn't so concerned with the exact amount you give, but the principles of giving from among your first and best and sharing with the one who teaches you seem to be important. Okay. Let's go on to verse 10. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. The great 17th century uh, Welsh commentator Matthew Henry uh, you may have, he points out something very wise here. He says, Solomon does not say thy bags, but thy barns. Bless thee with an increase of that which is for use. They that do good shall have more to do good with. In other words, not your wallet, but your barns. And the barns were, were think about it. Everything we read here in Proverbs is about food and drink, the overflow of which literally has a shelf life, right? So if it literally has a shelf life, Use it. That's what it was designed for, to be used, not just stored. God gives you more not to increase your standard of living, but to increase your standard of giving. Thirdly, give to be transformed. Proverbs talks about giving to be transformed. Chapter 22, verse 9, whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed. Now, this proverb is, is super intriguing for two reasons, for what it says, but also for what it doesn't say. First, for what it says. This word, I, is used in Proverbs as a symbolic agent for either giving or withholding. It's an interesting thing. Why I, I don't know, but it's used throughout Proverbs for, for, as a symbolic agent for giving or withholding. Here, the author Solomon sees it, the I, representing a person who sees opportunity, who sees abundance, who see the multiplication of grace and goodness through giving, but I is also used elsewhere in Proverbs to describe someone who sees needs as a threat to my own scarcity. That person's need is a threat to my own scarcity. There's almost so much pie in the world, I got to protect my own peace. 
I love learning new things in the Bible. And what I learned this week is very interesting. The use of I in Proverbs has a very cool connection to Jesus in the New Testament. In the middle of this, this famous sermon on the Mount, Jesus comments on the I and what's an initially kind of confusing teaching. So if you've ever read the New Testament, you may have read this teaching before. And you thought to yourself, it's probably one of those verses I'm just going to skip because <laughs> I don't know what it means, all right? At least I felt that way. All right, Matthew chapter 6, verses 22 and 23, Jesus says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, it's, first of all, you think, what does Jesus mean? And what does it have to do with our wealth and giving? Well, we remember that Proverbs envisions the eye as something either that sees opportunity, abundance, the multiplication of grace, or it sees threats to my own piece of the pie, right? That's how the eye looks at life. But looks what happens if we zoom out at the context of Jesus' teaching. If we read up and we read down, if we read up just prior to Jesus' comment about the eye, he's talking about not storing up treasures in heaven, not storing up money in heaven. Or sorry, storing up money in heaven, but not storing up money on earth. He's talking about treasure just before this. What is he talking after this, this comment about the eye? He talks about you're not able to serve two masters. You can't serve both God and money. If you read up, you read down, the whole context here Jesus is talking about is our money, our treasure, what we tend to store up. In other words, Jesus is absolutely thinking back to this wisdom in Proverbs about the eye, saying, in effect, what you see in terms of generosity, what you choose to see in terms of generosity will affect your whole person, your entire person, all of who you are. That's really important. And you might say, great, Ryan, but I, I know myself, and while I'm never probably going to say it out loud, my eye, I look out at the world, I see mostly scarcity. I see needs as a potential threat to me and those I love. I fear giving it away. I fear letting it go. I, I want to keep it just in case. And I understand that. In fact, frankly, friends, if you can admit that, even, even secretly, even quietly, that's an incredibly insightful humble and wise place to start because you cannot change on your own. We all need to look to Jesus to change. Literally need to look to him. Later in the New Testament, one of Jesus' followers named Paul says just this, that we all with unveiled face, in other words, able to see, beholding the glory of the Lord Jesus are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the next. Okay, so by seeing Jesus you can be transformed. Your eye, the, the, the way you see the world can be transformed. Specifically, I want to encourage you to behold, look to the generosity of Jesus, his bountiful eye, so that your eye may be transformed. And that's our message in a nutshell this morning. Look to the generosity of Jesus so that your eye, the way you see the world, may be transformed. The Gospels record the words Jesus saw more than 40 times because he constantly saw opportunities to be generous with others. He saw, he saw a friend's family member sick. So what does he do? He takes the time to heal her and help her up. 
He saw people's faith and he made sure to celebrate it. He twice saw betrayers of his own people, tax collectors. One he called to be his disciple. The other he called to go have lunch with them. If you want the bountiful eye that Proverbs describes, I want to encourage you to see, behold, regularly watch the generosity of Jesus. See that. That's what this proverb says. Now, it's interesting what this proverb doesn't say. The commentaries I read, in other words, the experts and, and you know, Old Testament, the scholars, when I read, they were all in agreement. This person from Proverbs 22, verse 9, is not a person of means. You'd expect this proverb to read, person, you know, a bountiful purse, bountiful storehouse, a bountiful abundance, a bountiful eye is the person who has an eye to give bountifully, but not the saving his account to match. They give not out of their plenty, but out of their want. In other words, Proverbs 22, verse 9, envisions a sacrificial giver. Again, look to the generosity of Jesus while giving his life on the cross. When he literally had nothing left to give, he saw his mother who would no longer have a son. And he saw his friend without a mother. And you know what he does? He gives them to each other while on the cross. He does this. He continues to give. He saw his enemies rejoicing at his death, mocking him, celebrating what was happening, and he gives them forgiveness. Father, forgive them. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. I was thinking about a person in our church this week who kept coming to mind, a sacrificial giver with a bountiful eye. This person thinks tirelessly about a small mission in a third world country. The future of those involved in this mission were rocked when the leader of this original mission was discovered to be embezzling uh, donations as well as teacher salaries. So this person and a few other members of our church banded together to save the remnants of what was left behind. I know this person of whom I speak has visited this country, they, uh, this mission, the children who benefit from it. Um, this dear family member does not have a lucrative day job, to say the least, but they give sacrificially of what they have. And it's not just this particular passion, it's a way of life for them. I interact with this person during the week, and they're always generous with their words. They, they like to lend a bent ear to listen, uh, a heart ready to respond, and with a bountiful eye ready to bless others. And I don't want to say much more, but I don't want to embarrass this person. But this is a, a person who, who has an eye to give bountifully, but not necessarily a savings account to match. And that's inspiring. You know, during the height of the pandemic, I read about this young couple. It was this cool story about a young couple. They, they had, they're going to get married, and they put down a 50% deposit on a caterer for their wedding. A couple thousand dollars. And when COVID hit, their wedding was canceled. And they couldn't get their 50%. But rather than eat the 50%, they used money intended for their first two months' rent for their new place to pay the other 50% to help a nonprofit mental health service provider feed those in need over Thanksgiving. They looked at money for rent and said, rather than 
Let me just, let's just pay the rest. They were asked about it. When they were asked about it, here's how they replied, quote, it's amazing. We're normally the kind of people who miss seeing opportunities to give. But we look to Jesus who gave when he literally had nothing left to give. Friend, by looking to the sacrificial generosity of Jesus, your eye, the way you see the world, can be transformed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for wisdom, for people, I confess, like myself, who, who aren't as necessarily as quick to give of their means. Father, who, who sometimes struggle um, to want to hold out a hand or a heart, Father. Thank you for wisdom for us, Father. And we, for people like me, I pray that we look to the sacrificial generosity of Jesus. Father, I, I, I am so thankful for, for a wife. I'm so thankful for others in my life who've given me an example. And because of that, because I've looked to the generosity of Jesus, I've become a more giving person, but I want a more bountiful eye, an eye that sees opportunities for generosity like Jesus did. But I know I can't get there on my own. Help me look to you, Lord Jesus. Help me continually see the cross, where even on the cross, you gave of yourself when you had nothing left to give. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for that. That's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um,